Welcome to the last in the current series of the Cloth Cultures podcast for the British Textile Biennial with me, Amber Butchart. Throughout this series, I've been exploring the Lancashire Textile Gallery. This is a new online resource that brings together objects and artefacts held by museums, archives and manufacturers from across the county. I've been speaking to curators, artists, enthusiasts and researchers about everything from the exquisitely detailed medieval embroidery known as Opus Anglicanum to costumes worn by visitors to Blackpool's Pleasure Beach in the 1930s. For this last episode, we're heading to Preston, to the Harris Museum, Art Gallery and Library, which is such a fantastic place to visit. I had a lovely time talking to curator Caroline Alexander and costume collection champions Pat, Zilpha and Eileen about their well-known collection of Horrocks's fashions and the lesser known, but no less brilliant, fuzzy felt fashions of Mabel Haythorn. Hello, I'm Caroline and I work at the Harris Museum and Art Gallery. I'm one of the curators here and I look after the decorative art collection. Hello, I'm Pat and I've been volunteering at the Harris since I retired, which is now 14 years. Um, I've volunteered for lots of different things, but the best one is the Textile Champions, which happens on a Wednesday once a month where we get to root through all the lovely wardrobes in the cellar and have a look at all the fashions from long ago. And I want to take them all home and put them in my wardrobe, but they won't fit. They won't let you. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, I'm Zilpha. I'm one of the um, costume champions at the Harris and I've been doing it for about six years. I have learnt an awful lot and I'm delighted when that Wednesday once a month comes round. Hello, I'm Eileen. Um, I volunteered at the Harris for um, probably over 20 years, but for the last number of years, I've uh, been mainly involved with costume champions. Um, and as well as dealing with the costumes, there's lots of other things, um, you know, handbags and wallets and purses and uh, jewellery um, that uh, we've, we've gone through and itemised. And um, it, it's lovely. Sometimes you, you find things inside wallets that people have left in there from long ago. Um, and also the social side of it as well, because um, uh, you, you make new friends and we've all got that in common that we, uh, we love the things at the Harris. We do like making coat hangers as well. <laughs> Not a lot. <laughs> Not a lot. Caroline, can you tell me about the dress collection at the Harris? Well, the Harris's costume and textile collection um, includes men, women and children's garments from really the sort of like um, 18th century up to the modern day. Although I must say predominantly it is women's wear. And I'd say the bulk of the collection is also um, 19th and early 20th century clothes. And it ranges from things that were born, that were acquired for the museum collection because they had an interest in it told an interesting fashion story, but a lot of things have come from local people and were either made, worn or sold locally. Um, now, of course, the jewel in the crown of the, Hor of the Harris's uh, dress collection are the Horrocks' fashions frocks. We are incredibly lucky to have, gosh, it's about 50 or 60 dresses now, but we also have a design archive that links to the company and also um, just a number of other um, um, 
items that relate to Horrocks's fashions. Now, Horrocks's was a was established in 1791, and it was a cotton uh, mill and manufacturers in Preston. It throughout it, it built its reputation up in the 19th century, and it became known quite rightly, I think, not boastfully, as the greatest name in cotton. And it was specialised in cotton sheeting or quite plain fabric, just a grey cloth. It was also known as so and toweling, um, latterly in the late 19th and early 20th century. So very functional cotton that it's then sold on to other retailers and companies to make up into whatever garments or it was sold through dress making shops. And it had this fantastic reputation because of the quality of the cloth. But obviously the cotton story in, in um, the UK and in Preston and Lancashire is one of sort of boom and bust and, and from the 19th, from the early 20th century, one of the sort of period of decline. Well, after the Second World War, Horrocks were really looking to diversify their business and perhaps to sell more of their main product, which was this cotton sheeting. And they established a, a company that Horrocks fashions that made ready to wear frocks. And this is the first time really that they on a large scale were ma making ready to wear garments. They did make some nighties and shirts in the late 19th century, but relatively few. And so really, as almost immediately after the Second World War, they acquired a sort of like a sales room in London and started to make these ready-to-wear garments and they were what they did is fantastically was bring together the top quality cotton of their main manufacturing business and they also worked with the best artists that they could find to have these wonderful printed patterns and then they were really clever about how they styled and sold the the, the dresses that they made so, for example, they worked with artists like Alistair Morton, but also some in-house designers in Preston. And then increasingly, they also went to well-known painters and, and um, sculptors and artists of the day and secured designs off from them. So they had this wonderful sort of turnover of patterns that they would then put into four or five different colorways and then they would make so many dresses in so many styles so that they could make sure they didn't flood the market so if you wore a horrocks's dress it would be very unlucky if you went to a wedding say or somewhere and saw someone else in the same dress so you had that chance of exclusivity there was one daily mail reporter in the 1950s it was on holiday in malta and she recorded seeing a lot of women wearing their horrocks fashion frocks but none of them were the same so that's the sort of thing that they were clever at was that they were relatively affordable you'd have to have had a good job and saved up to get one they were often bought as going away clothes or for holidays they were special frocks and what's lucky is because they were special a lot of ladies hung on to them and so the harris didn't actually collect Horrocks's fashions frocks in the 1950s when they were being made and were a great, you know, were hugely popular and being worn by Princess Elizabeth and Mar Margaret and the later, and then of course when she became queen. It wasn't really until the late 70s, 80s, 90s, when perhaps the ladies who wore them were ha perhaps having a clear out of their wardrobe or their families were, that the garments started to be donated to the museum. And I must mention here, Christine Boydell, who's a, um, historian and academic who has written a book on Horrocks's fashions. She did an exhibition at the Harris and that was really the beginnings of our Horrocks's fashions collection because through that exhibition a lot of local people got in touch and, and eventually donated their garments to the collection and since then it's just grown and grown. We've, we're really lucky there it's an amazing collection. Tell me about the costume champions at the Harris. Um, when I first started working at the Harris, I was overwhelmed by how fantastic the collections were, but also about how much 
there was to do in terms of caring for them and understanding them. I am not a dressmaker. I am not a technical, I can't sew, I can't knit. A lot of the ladies have joked about how bad that is when we first started up craft <laughs> sessions. I would bring a scarf that I'd been making for like 10 years think, since I think I was like, you know, a, a student and they just thought it was terrible. And I knew I needed help in looking after this collection. And I knew that there was a huge amount of local expertise and knowledge about clothes and textiles and dressmaking. And so we set up a group called the Costume Collection Champions or the Textile Collection Champions. And we asked local people to be involved. If you had sewing skills um, and you wanted to help out, then to come along and we meet, we used to meet um, once a month on a Wednesday. And the ladies would help me make, um, it was largely ladies, everybody's welcome, obviously, but um, would help me make padded hangers to store the garments on. They all winced when I said that because they spent so made many hundreds and hundreds of padded hangers. And um, and also, the it also helped, you know, when you, a new item comes into the collection and you have to sew the number into the garment, they helped me do that. Because if I did that, I would stitch my fingers to the uh, clothing. And... The Harris is closed at the minute because we're doing a big refurbishment and it's involved moving the collection out of the museum stores into a temporary off-site store. And it, the collection will be stored differently when it comes back into the collection. So we've also been making Tyvek bags to encapsulate the collection. It's probably more sharp intake of breath there from the ladies because we've made many <laughs> hundreds of Tyvek bags as well. So um, there's about, gosh, maybe 15 to 20 people who help out with the project and they are very much at the heart of the how we care for the museum's collection and I really couldn't do it without them. And Caroline, can you please tell me a bit about the history of the Harris? So the Harris Museum Art Gallery and Library is really like Preston City Art Gallery and Library. It's called the Harris because it's named after the Victorian gentleman who's, who left his fortune to his hometown of Preston. Edmund Harris was a solicitor in uh, Preston. And it's interesting actually, because a lot of people ask, you know, a wealthy individual from Preston, he must be like a cotton magnet or something like that, but actually he was a solicitor. And when he died, his will revealed that he'd left his fortune to a number of charitable courses um, in Preston. He established the Harris Orphanage and he also established the Harris Institute, which eventually became UCLan, the University of Central Lancashire. And he also wanted to establish an institution of public utility in Preston. And that's what became the Harris Library, Museum and Art Gallery. So, um, and it's in, he wanted to establish it in memory of his family. So not in his own remembrance, but for that of his family. Um, so it's, yeah, so that's so the Harris, um, the, Edmund died in um, the 1870s and the Harris opened in 1893. I don't know whether this is going into too much detail, but I can tell this, is, but what's funny is though, it's named after Edmund Harris, it's actually, the vision of the architect who designed and built the Harris. There was a chap called Joseph Hibbert. He was a local Preston man, an architect. He was also a town councillor and at one time a mayor. And he really appointed himself the architect of the Harris, designed it, and was really responsible for establishing its early collections. So it's a funny thing, really. It's named after Harris, but it was the vision of one man, Joseph Hibbert. And it's been open since 1893, and we've got fine art and decorative collections, local history and historic books. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, and Pat, what is your earliest memory of the Harris? Oh, I've been coming to the Harris since I was knee high to a grasshopper. I can't remember the first time I came, <clears throat> but I can remember bringing school children from school 
can remember bringing my own kids and my grandkids. But I only got involved volunteering with the collection when I accidentally met Caroline and we just chatted and Caroline said, can you come on Wednesday and we'll look at clothes. <laughs> How fantastic. Zilfa, when did you first start volunteering at the Harris? Probably about um, six years ago. I had joined the craft group that was in the library and um, I didn't get on with it very well at all. And I met Eileen and Eileen said, oh, I do something and I think you'd really like it. And so I got sucked into being a costume champion. Never regretted it. <laughs> <laughs> and so Eileen, you were already a costume champion. What's your earliest memory of the Harris? When did you start volunteering? Uh, well, my earliest memory was from when I was a little girl and my mum used to bring me and my two sisters into the Harris and we used to come in to watch the pendulum swing and my mum used to say, you have to be good. So I associated me being good in the Harris Museum with the world stopping turning <laughs> if the pendulum stopped. Um, but I actually started volunteering probably over 20 years ago when I got involved uh, with a lady who I went to keep fit class with, um, who um, uh, ran a ses sessions for children uh, up on the gallery in the museum. And it was called the So Cool Club, spelled S-E-W. Um, and um, people could just stop off and people actually used to leave the children while they went and did the shopping. And we had all sorts of craft and sewing things on the go there. And sort of through that, I got involved with other things and Caroline uh, with the with the costumes. So yes, over the years, it's been uh, been a lovely thing to do. Now, in the collections at the Harris are some of the most delightful homemade clothes created by Mabel Haythorn. Can you, Caroline, tell me a bit about Mabel and these clothes that she made? Yes. Well, I first came when obviously as a curator, you spend a lot of time working through the collection and doing different jobs. And I remember coming across these clothes that were some dresses that were hanging in a wardrobe, four or five of them, that were all decorated with felt cut out and applied um, felt, like fuzzy felt shapes. And, you know, it was so striking. The Harris collection probably has, you know, six, uh, around 6,000 items in there. A lot of them like professionally made, some dressmaker items as well, but these really stood out because they were so colorful and so unusual. There was nothing else like it in the collection. And they sort of were on my radar then. And then it could have been, I can't even remember, maybe months or years later, I was going through some of the boxes and came across a whole box of about 20 or 30 bodices made in the same style from the same lady. So then you think, good Lord, you know, we've got sort of like 30 or 40 pieces by this Mabel Haythorn, who was she? And we started to do a little bit more research into her. And then I can't remember whether I came across these paintings or my colleague, the curator of fine art, Lindsay showed me, we at the Harris also has two paintings which represent Mabel, we think Mabel, wearing her fuzzy felt fashions. And so then you, re you realize that this is really the most extraordinary little collection within a collection that to, to those who saw this collection, just it was immediately that these were sort of really striking and really unique and deserved a bit more research. And that, so since then, we've tried to do a little bit of detective work on Mabel and find out a bit more about her. 
but also just to look at her clothes and to see what we can find out about her and what she loved about fashion and clothes from these garments. You know, we don't, there's no other surviving sources from Mabel to tell her about her collection. So it's just interesting to see what you can discover just by looking closely at the clothes and having a conversation with other dressmakers and other interested people like Eileen, Zilfer and Pat. Zilfa, um, when did you first see these clothes? What were your, your first thoughts when you saw them? Um, I didn't want to wear them. <laughs> <laughs> they are very decorative and unique. Um, and if you, if you just saw several of them, you would know that they'd come from the same person because the motifs that are on it are on all of the, the different garments are similar and in some cases exactly the same. So she had, um, I don't know whether they were pre-cut, but she had a range of applique felt that went everywhere on any bodice or dress or garment that she made. So they are full on and possibly not something that you would want to um, wear. <laughs> for any occasion in my life. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> and to examine the, um, the way that they've been made, we have had a discussion about this and we believe, we believe, the volunteers, not necessarily <laughs> Caroline, we believe that some of the garments have been made from other garments, that she was a pioneer in the... Um, uh, reforming of things that she had and I think at some point somebody had said that she had inherited a lot of clothing from her family so it may well be that she was um, just utilizing what she'd got. So it's almost what we would call today upcycling I suppose where you're taking something secondhand something a bit older and really sort of giving it an, an entirely new life which is just such a wonderful message for today as well um pat when did you first come across these fashions do you know i can't remember now it was before covid we had a detective session one wednesday and caroline brought all these lovely clothes out it must be about five years ago yeah um and I'd forgotten all about them until Caroline mentioned it this week because they're not on display. But I've upcycled my clothes all my life, which my children have always thought was hilarious. Um, and now they're realising, actually, it's not that hilarious at all. But I think very much that is what Mabel's been doing. I think she's inherited clothes from her family that are sort of late Victorian, early Edwardian, with yards and yards of material in. And I think this is her repurposing them. And because she was born in 1910, she is probably um, doing this in the period of World War II, when you couldn't buy fabric and then going in into the 1950s where the new look is in with loads and loads and loads and loads of material in your skirt because they are all garments with very very full skirts but her sewing skills 
of actually garment manufacture is not that good. It's all about the decoration, I think, a lot of it, isn't it? These, uh, which and uh, which I just absolutely love the way that she's decorated these. It's so gorgeous. Um, Eileen, what are your thoughts on you know how she made these clothes, or did, did do we know if she had any formal training? Uh, well, I wouldn't have thought so, judging by the um, uh, the evidence. Um, she was obviously interested in the decoration, the felt um, decoration on them. I don't think she was particularly concerned about the style um, of the of the garment. They're all very similar, the body styles, the neckline. Um, it's mainly about the decoration. And there's this a very interesting discrepancy between um, parts of the garment that were sewn that have obviously been done professionally that we think were probably um, purchased garments that she's then used um, to put together, um, maybe sort of um, cut a dress off at the waist and made it shorter. And then where she's put it back together, it's sort of all done with press studs and, um, and then a belt to cover um, the, 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 the sewing, which as Pat said, really isn't very good. So it, it's sort of a mixture of, we think these um, dresses and bodices maybe even that have been purchased or passed down to her. And she simply used those as a base for this decoration of paisley shapes and flower shapes. That was really what she was interested in, not the actual, uh, not, not the actual garment. I love that so much. And this kind of sort of slight lack of technical skill makes me warm to Mabel even more because I feel like this is also exactly how I would do it. <laughs> if I was doing these, I'd just be really slapdash. Just be like, I'll oh, just do that with a, a popper, with a stud. That'll be fine. No one will know. <laughs> On the plus side for Mabel, the actual felt pieces mm. are all mm, sewn yeah. on by hand in the most exquisite, tiny, weeny, weeny stitches. So actual hand sewing, she obviously had mastered. It was more garment construction that she didn't know about. I think Pat's hit the nail on the head there. There is a discrepancy between these garments. The way that the actual bodice or dress is made is often really quite rudimentary. I have a slightly different view to Pat, Zilfra and Eileen, although I bow to their dressmaking expertise. But my feeling is that she's made the, I think Mabel did make the bodice, but she's done it in a very rudimentary way. But what she's really lavished all the attention on is applying the felt decoration. And the, the, de the stitches on the front are beautifully done. On the back, it's a bit um, hodgepodge. And I think like often real dressmakers and embroiderers often want the back to be as good as the front, don't they? Which hasn't bothered her. And also there's all these press studs in the construction, which most people don't wear press, don't use press studs. It makes me think of more theatrical or dressing up clothes. And so I think that's what's interesting about Mabel's garments is, did she actually wear them? Were they just for fun? Did she just dress up in them? Well, that actually brings me on to my next question. Do we know anything about where or when Mabel wore these clothes? Nothing came with the collection when it was first bequeathed to the Harris, because what's interesting to say is when Mabel died, her will revealed that she had left 
her, her collection to the Harris, which is a really significant, special thing to do. And although she had some association, she had some acquaintances who were maybe members of the Friends of the Harris or who volunteered or have connections with the Harris, she didn't herself personally. But this is what we've gathered from talking to people that knew her. So we know she was born from, from doing some sort of ancestry research. You know, we know she was born in 1910, that she lived her whole life at Frenchwood House, which is quite a big grand property overlooking Avon and Park in Preston. We think that that property was divided up into flats and her family owned like one of the apartments. Her mum was listed as the, as the sort of residence in the Preston directory before her brother was and then Mabel was. We know that she had a private income and probably didn't work, so quite a well-to-do family. People who knew her and would go around for a cup of tea said that the apartment was full of quite old Victorian furniture and had quite an old-fashioned feel. And we know that Mabel loved to reminisce. And if, if you came around for a cup of tea, she, what she loved to do was get out her collection of historic clothes. And she loved also to get out like menus and different sort of paraphernalia from cruise holidays that she'd been on as a young girl. And she would like talk you through the menu or reminisce about her, you know, holidays and family life. People rem remember the clothes as being maybe from the 1920s. She also had a big like historic shoe collection again from that period and she would get the garments out to show people and reminisce and there were lovely things. People have said that she was somebody quite liked to live in the past and that she was, um, and but I don't want to use this word critically, but maybe a little bit of a fussy person, a little bit of a fastidious person who maybe had a bit of a fear of the future. All of this is just personal recollection, you know, and we all remember and have different views on people. Um, what we do, what a couple of people who knew her have said is that she didn't wear these clothes out and about, that she was quite a respectable old fashioned dresser. Somebody even said that she didn't like the deal, you know, the new look sort of fashions when they came out and she was maybe a little bit more old fashioned, always wore a longer length skirt, you know, very traditional and quite buttoned up. A lot of people who went to a house remember getting out the historic clothes, maybe the 1920s coats or shoes and things, but don't remember seeing her own homemade garments. But then one person did say that they thought they'd seen some of her own clothes on a mannequin in her house. So it's all recollect, it's all fascinating little tidbits and recollections, impossible to pin anything down, which is why it's so nice in a way talking about these clothes, because we can all bring our own thoughts and expertise to it and just enjoy the conversation rather than necessarily trying to establish what or when they were made or how. And so that's some of what we know about her. She sounds fantastic. I really wish I could have met Mabel. She sounds wonderful. And I love this idea of her really diligently decorating all of these items and creating these really remarkable pieces and then only wearing them at home. It's like a secret life or something. There's something very, very intriguing and, and quite romantic about that as well, I think. And am I right in thinking that as well as the items, you also have some paintings of her wearing them? We do. Now, if the garments themselves are extraordinary, these two paintings take it to the next level. They are quite, they're fascinating paintings. They're quite kitsch, I suppose, is one word you might use, or you might sort of describe it as quite typical of that, of maybe sort of like outsider art or quite sort of folk, has a sort of like folk art sort of feel, a bit like Mabel might be Preston's Madge Gill or someone like that. She is, so it's a self-portrait. With, well, I'll say that again because I don't actually we don't actually 100% know. There's two paintings. 
One of them is called Caroline in the Lace Dress. Now, as Caroline was Mabel's first name, but she went by the name Mabel. So it's interesting that she uses, I don't know whether it was a Sunday best name or if it was just maybe a name that she didn't use very much, or if she's almost playing a role in this painting and dressing up, I don't know. But she sat down, just move. She sat down in a seat, she's holding a rose. She's got a flower basket of roses at her feet and she's got a rose in her hair. She has the most extraordinary hairdo. Um, very sort of crimped and curled and quaffed and she is holding in one hand in this quite unusual sort of grasp the fabric of her dress in another painting and the dress she's wearing we've got in the collection interestingly in this dress there is a little tag almost like a you know that a label that you might find in a in a dress today but that's handwritten and we think but we don't know attached to the garment by Mabel and it says Prudence Mabel Haythorn. So we don't know if that's the dresser's name or um, we haven't come across any other like homemade name tags in the garment, but it's it's interesting. And then in the other painting, she's wearing a blue and flowery dress and this is called Pas de Fleur, so almost like a French title. I don't know whether that means like country of flowers or no flowers. I've tried to sort of Google translate the uh, what the title might mean. And this painting's even more theatrical, hairdo slightly different, but still very sort of quaffed, almost like a croissant-like hairdo on her, um, her hair, on her head. And again, she's holding the garment of a of a dress, the skirt of a dress, sort of, you know how like a child might hold a comforter or a muslin, it's sort of really grasped in the in the in the palm of a hand, and she's almost showing it off to the viewer. In both paintings, she's got sort of like pointy shoes that peep out the bottom. And there's particularly in the Pas de Fleur portrait, it feels quite theatrical and as if she's showing up, showing off the frock. You do get the sense very much that it's a painting, not just of Mabel, but of the dress itself. Just such a remarkable collection uh, of items. It's so wonderful. I was wondering if we know anything about this, the house, the quite grand house that she lived in. Is it still a private house today or is it somewhere that people can go and visit it is still a private house today and i um and it's still a, it's very you know it's a very established um property i should probably have done more research into it sorry for this thing <laughs> um but i can find out afterwards but um yeah it's a well-known large property grand property in preston that overlooks avon and park which is so it's so it has that beautiful view onto the park but also from the park you can see this big quite historically important house in preston hmm. Gorgeous. Now, I'm particularly fascinated by one of her dresses that looks like it might be inspired by a Horrocks design. So I'd love to hear a bit more about that and also the relationship Horrocks has to Preston, because I know this is something that the Harris is very well known for, your Horrocks collection. Yeah, so one of the dresses that we have, and it does stand out in the collection of, of Mabel's collection as being something a little bit different. On the whole, Mabel's approach was to have quite a sort of like swirling sort of elegant um, placement of the floral patterns. Whereas in this dress, which has um, sleeves um, and um, a sort of little V-neck and a full skirt, has a sort of banded floral design, which is really typical of a lot of Horrocks's fashions garments. I think it was Alistair Morton, one of the sort of designers that worked for Horrocks's, really established that um, 
flowers set within a geometric framework as being a sort of like signature style or motif of a Horrocks' fashion pattern. So for Mabel, she has got banded felt, strips of felt um, that run horizontally across the dress with her floral motifs just inside of it. And it does feel a slightly more formal, more obviously 1950s frock in the in Mabel's sort of collection. And um, yeah, it's a really interesting example of her work. Uh, now, Pat, um, Zilpha and Eileen, uh, Horrocks's, the collection in the museum is, is quite well known. Is this something, you're all volunteers that work with the dress collection. Is this something that you particularly enjoy working with? I know Horrocks's has very, you know, local roots. Um, tell me about your experience with that collection. It's been fascinating, particularly recently, when we've had the opportunity of looking at every piece that they've got in the costumes um, collection. But the Horrocks's ones, because they might well have been within our lifetime, um, have a particular interest. And it, it's got to the point now where if we see a Horrocks's dress somewhere else, not in the Harris, in another collection or a, a private person has got it you immediately recognize it mm. yes I've noticed this I grew up with Horrocks's fashions because I lived in Preston and my mum was of that age we never she nor I ever actually owned a Horrocks's fashion because although they were cheap they weren't cheap to the to us we couldn't afford, but what we could do was go to the Horrocks's shop and buy the fabric and then make our own. So mum and I were constantly sewing what would appear to be Horrocks's fashion, but were actually mum and pat fashion. <laughs> um, but because I sort of wore that type of garment, it's like Zulfa says, if you see somebody wearing it or you see it on the newsreel, on the telly, you know straight away it's Horrocks' fashion. Uh, to be honest, um, it's not a fashion I particularly loved, only for the net underskirts that went <laughs> underneath it, which I loved with a passion. So when I got to see uh, programmes, uh, films, like um, Greece, uh, West Side West Story. Side Story. Mm -hmm. uh, all I was looking at was underskirts. <laughs> it is quite nice to see in um, a collection in a museum uh, the clothes that um, we used to wear ourselves. It sort of shows our age rather. Um, but in the 1950s, um, most people actually did make their own clothes. And I had two sisters and we were constantly um, on the floor, um, gathering up these masses and masses of material to make these great big skirts. And I remember mum sort of climbing over us. Uh, but like Pat, we, we used to make these dresses sort of in the style of Horrocks's. And I did love them and I love wearing them. I think they were sort of rather made for somebody of my build with like a small waist and very big skirts. Um, so I did like those sorts of uh, those, those sorts of fashions uh, and it is quite nice seeing things and think oh I had one like that um, but 
um, we, I, I never actually owned um, a Horrocks's. We, we just made our own. And like Pat with the underskirts, my mum was quite good at thinking up lots of different ways to make big underskirts. Um, it was a bit of a passion of hers, but obviously they were needed to set off um, the, uh, the lovely full skirts that we, uh, we, we used to make. So do we know how Mabel's clothes found their way into the collections at Harris? As far as I know, it's hard to pin this down, but it's from the little scant record notes on the sort of catalogue that we have, on the museum catalogue. Um, they She bequeathed them to the Harris. They were left in her will to, um, to the collection. Now that's strange because if she had a historic dress collection of other 1920s clothes or historic shoes, they didn't come with them to our knowledge. You know, museums really rely on their catalogue and their documentation to understand the story of a collection and how it, or a, a, the story of a item in our collection and how it got to be here. And sadly, sometimes those stories get missed off. Sometimes in museums, you sort of document the garment rather than documenting the story. That's something we're really careful about now is to make sure that we do both. Because often as interesting as the garment is, you don't always need a visual description because it's in front of you. What you want to know is how did it get here? So it's a bit enigmatic with Mabel and all that what we know about her wasn't on the, in any of the original documentation to do with the collection. It's what we've been able to piece together since, which has felt like a really important thing to do because obviously the people who knew her are in their 90s now. So you want to make sure you get that sort of, albeit anecdotal information pinned down for future generations that are looking at this collection. Now, because of her use of felt, these have been described as fuzzy felt fashions, which, are, you know, is just great sounds fantastic i remember playing with fuzzy felt as a child very 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 vividly and you know how tactile it is and the colors and everything can you tell me a bit about the history of fuzzy felt and do you have any in the collections at the harris that is a really good question and, i and, know oh do you mm. have you yeah in the harris collection no i don't know oh. about the harris collection but yeah. i know where fuzzy felt came from go on there was um, a lady called Lewis, no, Lois, a lady called Lois Allen and her husband, who had been in the army. The two of them during World War II were working at home with felt, making components for tank gaskets, which I assume with some method of preventing these gaskets from leaking. Because um, I have no knowledge of gaskets, but that's what <laughs> my husband and I have deduced. And as World War II developed and they needed more and more tanks, she ended up employing a lot of ladies locally who came and worked in outbuildings in her garden and they had children, so she had to set up a creche. And very soon she'd realised that mums were giving off cuts of the felt to the children to play with, who were sticking them on all sorts of things that they found that they could stick them to. And that gave her the idea of fuzzy felt, which she started to manufacture in 1950. Oh, that's good. And eventually that ability to make fuzzy felt was bought by big firms like heels and eventually she sold it all to various different companies and um and she bowed out and retired 
That's excellent. Thank you, Pat. That's fantastic. That's amazing. Um, now, I would love to hear from each of you which of Mabel's garments is your favourite. And if you could really describe it for me as well, that would be fantastic. So Eileen, do you want to go first? Uh, well, the one I, one I like best really is um, uh, not very colourful and I do normally like bright colours, uh, but I like the combination of the, um, the, the fabrics and the colours. It's, it's obviously been made from um, a grey sort of day dress in a very nice quality of material um, and it's as if she's cut it off at the middle and then attached it back as I said before with press studs and things but it's got this cream lace overlay um, for the skirt um, which is net with the felt things put on and it's hard to tell whether she's actually stitched these on or whether it was sort of a bought fabric like that very very beautifully done um and the the top as well and then it's got some black velvet bows up the the bodice um she seemed to have this idea of doing a um kind of slightly double-breasted fastening um for the bodice with these tiny press studs fastening it it, it all together um but but the, the this is one that does illustrate the discrepancy in the um sewing talent shall we say um that it does seem that the actual garment was a manufactured garment and she's just used that as a basis for her decoration but um the combination of the sort of gray and the cream and the black bows um i like and it's got the black belt to hide all the uh, the poor sewing around, around the waistline um and it is the sort of thing that i i would wear yeah it's lovely lovely zilpha I particularly like um, a shoulder cape. Um, it's made from black velvet. I think she might have made the whole thing herself. And it's got a pink lining and decorated with the felt flowers, which are various shades of pink and all identical. And green leaves, all in felt, all stitched on with these tiny stitches. Fastened, of course, at the neck with a with a press stud, her favourite, and as, around the inside. I'm not sure how I can describe this. As I'm waving my hands to tell you about mm -hmm. it. Um, around the um, edges of the lining is braid, a braid that you wouldn't necessarily put onto um, a garment. More that you would put on something that was upholstered. But um, it's the sort of thing that now that, you know, I know the collection better and I'm, I'm not surprised. But it's a very useful garment, I think. Just a little shoulder cape. I love a shoulder cape. So that sounds absolutely magical to me. Um, Pat, what's your favourite? Um, well, strangely enough, the one that Eileen's described is my favourite, which, like Eileen, it's an unusual choice because I love colour and this is grey and white so it's not a choice but it's the only garment I would actually dare walk down the street in but there is one that just suits my colour wave and that's one that has a very very simple 
dark blue uh, velvet bodice, very, very badly made, uh, but has a wonderful skirt, almost like a gypsy look. It, it's sort of um, an olive green and then uh, paisley felt shapes stitched all over it in the most minuscule stitching, but fabulous colours, emerald greens and purples and mulberries and pinks. And it's like paisley shapes and then flowers on the top of it. But at the bottom, there's a big border, almost like the one that looks horroxy where it's got felt bands round and between the two bands, lots and lots and lots of beautifully executed flowers in the same color as the paisley. I wouldn't wear the dress, but I would quite happily wear the skirt and leave the bodies behind. <laughs> Gorgeous, thank you. Caroline, what is it about these clothes that you think is so enthralling? They are so visually striking. Like I say, um, Harris has a huge um, clothing collection, you know, the 40 odd wardrobes. But if you were browsing through, you would not forget these ones. You know, you would you would immediately be like, who made this? This is amazing. These are fascinating. And I hope it hasn't come across that we've like been, you know, they are unusually made. And it is, you do sort of think, how on earth did, were these, worn even with all the press studs popping every five if you sat down but they the design of them is really beautifully done and you sort of think somebody took a huge amount of care and attention you know I think probably she this although again this is just me guessing hand cut all of the uh, using a template but say if she hand cut all of the paisley or floral motifs a lot of them have colors layered on top of each other so she's really thought through the different color combinations of each paisley motif and then how they work together across the garment the different ways the motifs sort of like sit and how the colors combine and there's just so much thought and care and attention We've talked about how beautiful the stitches are at the front, but a bit rougher on the back. There's a huge amount of sort of creativity and joy in these pieces and really good design, strong, you know, really strong use of colour. Um, so they think they just, it, whether you're, they're your taste or not, and they're easy to have a joke about, particularly because fuzzy felts have that sort of like funny status anyway, they, you have to admire the um, joy and the creativity of the person who made them. That's lovely. Absolutely lovely. This has been so lovely. It's brought these pieces to life so much and really brought Mabel to life as well. I just, this has been such a lovely interview. Thank you all of you so much. Thank you for joining me for this series of the Cloth Cultures podcast. And I hope you've enjoyed this exploration of the Lancashire Textile Gallery, which illuminates just some of the stories that textiles can tell. You can find the fantastic homemade fuzzy felt fashions of Mabel Haythorne at the Harris Museum Art Gallery and Library in Preston, Lancashire. They also feature in the Lancashire Textile Gallery, which we've been exploring throughout this series. This is a collaboration between the Gawthorpe Textiles Collection, the University of Central Lancashire and the British Textile Biennial, with contributions from museums and archives across the county. Head to LancashireTextileGallery.com to find out more about its changing programme of collections, exhibitions and artist commissions. 
The British Textile Biennial 2023 runs from the 29th of September to the 29th of October, exploring the environmental impact and regenerative potential of textiles and fashion. You can find out more on Twitter, at Textile Biennial, and Facebook and Instagram, at British Textile Biennial. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the series, and I'll see you soon on Cloth Cultures.